Welcome to my little podcast here. <laughs> Hope you guys are all doing well out there. Uh, thank you for listening. I've got an amazing guest today. This guy has traveled around the world and uh, has just done some amazing things, helped so many people. He even won a Congressional Medal of Honor for his effort, efforts, which I don't think that's easy to do. Uh, he's someone who's really doing a lot of good out there. And if you listen to my show, you know that I try to do some good things and I end each show with a charity. Uh, but this guy's out there. He's living it. He's working with tons of charities. He has a coaching business where he helps people and businesses. He has a book. Uh, he does speaking engagements. He's done even a TED Talk. Um, so we'll touch on some of that stuff in the interview, uh, but even more so than his career stuff, I wanted to just get his thoughts on things like success, dealing with emotions, and we even talk a little bit about politics, which is kind of a hot thing right now. Uh, so I think he's an extraordinary human being doing extraordinary things, and he has some great wisdom. And my goal for these interviews is always to educate and to entertain and inter inspire you. And I think we hit all three of those in this interview. So here it is, Mr. Jarek Robbins. Enjoy it. Welcome, Jarek Robbins. I hope I said that right. It's just Derek, Jarek like Derek, right? You nailed it. All right. Awesome. Welcome to the show. Um, first off, congrats on the birth of your, I believe it was a son, right? It is. Mr. Yeah. Koa, thank you. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, because I reached out and your, your team was like, oh, he just had a baby, so he might be a little busy for a while. I was like, <laughs> okay, fair enough. So we scheduled it for later. So congrats That's on right. that. Thank you for your flexibility. We did something fun. We cleared my entire calendar and I decided to be 100% dad as much as I could. So I got all my work down to Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Um, and I spent Friday through Monday in dad mode. And then now that we're three months into dad mode, I've just started to take a couple of days a week to start doing more of these, which is fun. Oh, cool. Do you do a lot of these kinds of podcasts? I've seen a few on the inter on the internet, on YouTube and stuff. Yeah, we do. Uh, actually, we'll do today. I have, I think I have three today. I'll have three next Monday and then we'll just cut it. So we're just getting back into opening a couple days up. So we'll probably be doing about six a month right now, mm -hmm. which isn't a ton, but it's enough while we have things locked to just let it pick up a little. Right. Um, so yeah, if, if, if I could, I'd like to talk a little bit about your background and then get into some concepts. I want to get your take on stuff because you have some really good takes that I've heard you have. But you, so you ended up um, going to the University of San Diego, which doesn't seem like the worst place in the world to go to college. Um, and you were actually thinking originally you're going to study political science and law, um, but then you switched your major to psychology. Um, it was interesting hearing you explain this because you had already kind of learned a lot of the advanced psychology techniques and then you kind of went backwards and then you started learning the basics. So uh, explain to me how that worked because uh, you had kind of already had a lot of this knowledge. Sure. Um, well, it was split. N knowing where you are now and knowing what works now is awesome. Knowing the history of what brought you here is important. And so I knew a lot of tactical tools that could work right now without knowing the history of what brought me there. And so, I mean, we even created a training program for people getting into the coaching space and the first module takes about a year and a half of my research and puts it into 90 minutes for them just to show the evolution from behaviorism to, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral psychology into the humanistic movement and the evolution of, of how people started diving deeper into psychology and, and the evolution of consciousness. And you start blending all this stuff together and then you go, oh. 
yeah, that makes a lot more sense why we use this or why we don't use that. I think history becomes really important. Um, I'll I'll take you on a side tangent real quick. We were in Kuwait doing a training for an organization. We were the gentleman who picked us up from the airport. He's a good friend. He organized the event for us. uh, And he was Nubian. Now, Nubian is a place in Egypt. And he was talking about how the Nubian people are becoming a myth in Egypt right now. I was like, a myth? How do you do that? How do you make a a whole group of people become a myth? And he's like, well, they've taken it out of the textbooks. Um, There's a language that they speak that that if, you know, they get in in a bickerment with the police or something, the police will attack them if they speak the language. And and so they're having this kind of tiff go on. And I'm only hearing one side of the story. So I'm sure there's two sides to this story. (laughs) But from one side of the story, they're removing this part of the history out of the history conversation so that it no longer exists. And then I thought about that. And I said, where else had this might have happened? Or might they have not included all the facts? And I went back and I was just reading a 500-year history of uh, forms of power, countries or governments or organizations that have had global power. And, you know, China was really high and then came down. The Netherlands went up. The UK came up. Eventually, America's formed. America comes up. I'm like, this is so fascinating. And in looking at it, around World War, right before World War, uh, I think it was two, I was like, what, what, what inspired in my history book in the US when I read, you know, the Japanese were part of not part of the allies. And so they bombed Pearl Harbor and that ignited a, a sleeping giant of America who got into the war. But no one ever told me why the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And I went and read and I found out that Japan had two years left of oil supply and were now going in the mainland China looking for regions that had oil rich uh, environments where they hmm. could occupy and, and take the oil. And America, the U.S. sold military equipment to China to protect against that, which pissed the Japanese off. So mm. they came and bombed Harbor. I was like, well, that wasn't in the book. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Who left that out? Because that seems like a pretty important fact or yeah. part of the story. Well, yeah, because you... so in the history of things, looking back, I realized, even though I know tools that work right now, I didn't know the whole history of the stuff I was using. Mm -hmm. And so psychology became really important to me because it started to teach me the basic understanding and history of the tools I was using and what actually got me there. Mm -hmm. Because that's a really important fact to know that the U.S. sold some stuff that pissed off somebody, not just that somebody randomly attacked. Right. No, that's definitely, yeah. Like that changes the story quite a bit. Right. Same thing on a lot of these tools. Yeah. I didn't know why one of these tools came about, I might be thinking like, oh, this is a horrible tool. That's just weird. And then you hear the whole story and you're like, actually, it makes a hell of a lot more sense once I know the details. Right. No, that's interesting. And then, so besides studying at uh, San Diego, you you did the semester at sea program. This is interesting. And you traveled all these different countries, Japan, China, India, Vietnam, yada, yada, yada. And um, you said that was kind of the inspiration for a lot of your work and your volunteer efforts and, um, you know, finding a way to make a positive difference in the world through philanthropy and being a volunteer. Um, so my question to you at that point in your life, you must've been, I don't know, 21, 22 when you're doing this semester at sea, I feel like most people, I think my brother did a semester at sea in Australia. Um, and I think he did not, uh, come back with the same, uh, you know, 
uh, ideals of helping the world and philanthropy. I feel like a lot of people at 21, 22 are going out to, and probably myself included, party and have fun and enjoy it. And you're totally like, you're having this like advanced maturity. It's a, how did you have that kind of view of the world at such a young age? Um, so there's multiple semester at seas, just so you know. There's some that are done on um, sailing yachts where you learn how to be a seaman and you okay. learn how to sail and manage the yacht and you study and learn on board, but it's more of like a working semester on on a sailboat, a giant sailing yacht. Uh, ours was on a 37,000 ton cruise ship with 700 other students. Oh. So it was more the luxury is the wrong word, but comparably it would be the luxury version okay. compared to the working version. Sure. And so with ours, there was definitely a group on board that found a way to party in every country we stopped around the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we had some messes. We had one guy who they have unbelievably strict rules that are very clear and easy to understand that they, they have for safety. I mean, you have 600 college kids in the middle of the ocean on a ship. There's yeah. a lot that can go wrong. Right. And if you oops in the middle of the ocean, it's hard to fix if you're on a ship and something yeah. happens really bad. And so I remember one night I was up at like two in the morning playing cards with a group of guys. And all of a sudden we're sitting there, we're playing, we're playing. And all of a sudden, like the table tilts completely sideways and all of our chips fall off the table. We're like, whoa, that's my money. And we're grabbing for it. We're like, what the heck's going on? And we're like, this is weird. Like the ship doesn't normally tilt like this at two in the morning. That's not what they do. And, and we were like, what the hell? And so we got up and everyone like put their chips in their pocket. We were very concerned about our $50. <laughs> we were students. It's a lot yeah, of college kids. Yeah. So we were, we were, we're all hogging our $50 in chips and we, we make it outside. And it turns out some kid fell off the back of the ship at two in the morning. And we were down near the, the Horn of South Africa on the bottom. And we were like, okay. Or the Cape of South Africa. We're like, that's not cool. And there was giant white caps in the ocean. I mean, what they taught us was if someone falls overboard, how to properly litter. Um, so you take like the the rings and stuff and you literally just start throwing things that'll float overboard oh. to create a trail back to where he might be. Oh, so okay. we just started throwing like all the life preservers and all kinds of stuff over to create a little like trail. And then the boat literally takes about 30 minutes to hang a U-turn because it's a giant ship. Right, okay. So 30 minutes later, we're, we're coming back around in a circle and, and we're going back. And then they put this little boat in with like four guys to go rescue him. They drop it. And you see this little boat literally going like this over the waves. Like these are huge waves down there. There's white caps. He's wearing a white long sleeve shirt. So he's waving his arm and no one can see him because it's just blending in in the ocean. About 20 minutes later, these guys actually find him. And it was like to be found in an environment like that is very slim chances. Like he should have been shark bait at that point. But they found him, they brought him on board and he came on and everyone was clapping like, oh my God, thank you so much. These guys risked their life to go get him. He came on and he's like, that's enough guys, on with the show. And we're like, okay, he got kicked off the ship and sent home the next port we pulled into. Wow. And so there's definitely that is an extreme version of people not really soaking in the amazingness of what's there. But then on the other side of there, there there's a lot of people who they leave as a citizen or, or a community member of their campus, their college, their city, their country, and they come back as a global citizen, someone who now sees the world in a radically different way. We look at stuff as 
oftentimes we look at parts of the world and go, wow, you know, they must need our help. They, they're, they're a developing nation, a third world country, something like this. And then you go spend time there and you're like, I don't understand what anyone's missing here. I mean, sure, they live in a mud hut, but they have love. They have their health. They have people who care about them. They have things they're, they're passionate about. They have purpose in their day-to-day life. What's missing? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why we call it developing because they seem to have all the most important things. Well, yeah. Tell me about that because you spent some time. It was like three months you did uh, in Uganda and you're doing like rural farming and stuff like that. And yeah. um, these people didn't even have running water. No, but that's the thing. So in my mind, I was going to the help. And when yeah. I got there and started to meet everybody, I started realizing I was like, wow, they have everything they need. I mean, there's some infrastructure needs as far as the environment is concerned, like running water or toilets mm-hmm. or electricity. But besides that, they have everything you really need to have a wonderful life. Do they complain that, about not having the running water? Or? No. It's just, <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? I would complain about yeah, it. Or, yeah. or the volunteers would be like, oh my God, there's no running water here. Yeah. And someone else is like, oh, you just keep living your life. And, and, uh, and that was the amazing part. You know, yeah. when I was a kid, I remember at 15 years old watching Biggie Smalls and P. Diddy on the, the music video Hypnotize thinking like, that's living. Yachts and helicopters and cars and planes and like that's really like living that that's enough in life. Like, that's everything. And then going on that trip, I was like, man, if you have people who care about you and you care about them, if you have your health, if you have water, I mean, uh, some type of water, you do need water. Yeah. But you have some water, you have some food, you have a safe place to live, you have friends and family, you have love, you, you have everything. Like, what else do you freaking really need? Yeah. And it started to shift the dynamic. Fast forward, I ran across a girl on Instagram probably a year and a half, two years ago. And I remember I, I was scrolling through and saw her page and was like, wow. And I remember just seeing it. And th- there was just two situations in the same photo that didn't normally, in my mind, go together. Hmm. She was lying there in a hospital gown. She had stitches straight down her chest. She had a tube coming straight out of like her heart area. That, that was pulling fluid out of her chest. She had tubes hooked up everywhere. She had her glasses on, the biggest smile I've ever seen, and two thumbs up. And I was like, wait a minute. The whole, like, some of these things don't go with the others. The smile and the thumbs up don't normally go with stitches down the middle of your chest and tubes coming out of you. Right. Like, that. that's not normally what you see. You see, like, eh, or, or, uh. like, you don't see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, who is this human? And what, what is going on in this photo? And I zoomed in. Turned out she had cystic fibrosis. She was born um, telling her her lungs would probably stop working at some point in her life, which they did. Uh, they gave her a double lung transplant, which she survived and came through successfully. Fast forward, she got married, fell in love, told him like, hey, my lungs might stop again at some point in my life. She had a seizure one night, rushed her to the hospital. And the hospital said, hey, you know, uh, we've already given you a double lung transplant. If, if we give you another one, there's probably no point because if the first one didn't work, the second one probably won't work. So we might as well just put you on hospice and let you go home and live out your last few days. Sorry. And I was like, wow, are hospitals allowed to say that? Like, what the, what the hell kind of pep talk is that? Like, go home. Sorry, we can't help. And we're yeah. not going to, they're not going to participate. And so they went home. They wrote 100 letters to 100 hospitals, her and her husband. Four of them wrote back. One of, her took, one of them took them in, which is UCLA, and said, we'll try. Brought her in, hooked her up to machines, kept her alive. 
Two in the morning, one night, she gets a call. We have a match of lungs. They bring her in, cut her open, pull out the old lungs, put in the new lungs, sew her up. And the next morning, I'd interviewed her husband as well and asked him. And he says, the next morning, I saw the biggest smile on my wife's face that I've ever seen in my life. He said, I wish I could say our wedding day was better, but I'd be lying. It was the biggest smile I've ever seen on her face. And she had a tube down her throat to breathe, but she's Mm. smiling. And she's scribbling on this little board. And as she turns it around with the biggest smile on her face, it says, I can breathe. I was like, damn. Think about that for a moment. I can breathe is the biggest smile on this woman's face. She goes home. Things are okay for a while. And then all of a sudden, something's happening in her heart. They rush her back. Then she has her second open heart surgery to drain fluid out of her heart. That's the tube that was coming out of her chest. Mm. And with all this stuff happening and the stitches down her chest and the tube coming out and all the stuff hooked up to her, she's doing laps, walking around (laughs) with all the machines little by little around. I'm like, holy crap, who is this superhero? Wow. And her her handle is at fight to breathe. Her name's Kayla Haber. She is a badass. And she fights to breathe every day. Wow. And I look back on what having enough was to me as a kid watching PD videos and, 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 you know, Puff Daddy and B.I.G. in yachts and helicopters and planes and cars. And then I meet this girl via Instagram and I'm thinking, wow, having enough went from all this stuff I thought I needed to just being happy and, and friends and community in Uganda to seeing this woman and being like, wow, if I have a breath in my lungs and a heart beating, I have more than enough to have a great life. And didn't you have a similar thing in Uganda? You almost died there, right? You had, they told you you had five yeah. days to live. Six days. But yeah, I, I, I mean, at one point I had malaria and, and that was part of where that realization started. But when I met her, it kind of landed. Like that was the takeoff of, wow, if I have my health, things are good enough. Then to meet someone who literally had their lungs replaced twice and is still Still, that person in the camera with stitches straight down her chest directly after surgery. I'm yeah. like, holy Moses. And then that was something that switched dynamically for me. And it's something for listeners, if, if you're paying attention, the concept is what does it mean to have enough to you? What does it really mean to have enough? We live in a consumeristic society that's always teaching us we need more. Second one, what does it mean to be enough? This is interesting. I remember I was in Ecuador and I was looking up at one of the billboards and, I, and our tour guide who was there, we were taking like a tour of the, the place we were in. And I was like, quick question. Is the person on the billboard from Ecuador, the model? She was like, no. I was like, well, where are they from? Where's the person on the billboard from? And she's like, uh, maybe Nicaraguan, maybe Brazilian. I don't know. They're not Ecuadorian though. People like here, people here don't look like that. <laughs> what? And I went, Really? And then I looked around in New York City at all the models on the billboards. And I was like, most of these people are not from America. They're Brazilian, European, but they're not from here. That's weird. And then I started looking at billboards all over the world and realizing the image that they show people is usually an image that's not originated in the place they're showing it which means they're saying, if you dress like this, use this makeup and and behave like this, maybe someday you can aspire to be as beautiful as this, to be enough. But the bone structure 
will never be the same in different parts of the world. People look different in different parts of the world, physiologically. Mm -hmm. But they're telling us if you use their, their face paint long enough, maybe you'll look like <laughs> him or her. Right. And they're creating an image that says you'll never be enough. Because no matter how hard you try, you're never going to look like that. Right. Yeah, but yeah. you're going to keep buying the stuff aspiring to look like that, to finally feel like you're enough. And I went, wow, that's really jacked up. Like society has not built us to feel like we're enough. It's built us to constantly tell us we're not enough. I'm like, that's not cool. Yeah. No, that's. <laughs> like, that's really not cool. Yeah. I mean, and, if you look I at it like, like that. I understand the psychology of selling. Right. Because marketing. if someone could achieve it, then they'll get bored and go buy something else or go do something mm -hmm. else or go finally feel like they're enough and not need to buy this stuff anymore. So you need them always aspiring to something they can never actually be. Right. Because, and then they'll change, they'll exchange the models because eventually the models get older. And then, so then they can't even themselves live up to those standards. Right. Exactly. Which yeah. I have friends who are models in New York city and they have that own feeling of like beyond beauty. I spent my whole life trying to be this beautiful woman or beautiful man and I've gotten a stage now where they're no longer casting me because there's younger people they're saying is now beautiful and I'm not. And they had to work through their own grievances and their own nervous system to go, wait a second, I am still beautiful, regardless if that person over there tells me I am or not or chooses me or not. And so there's this weird system in society that's built to always having us chasing something that's not us instead of valuing what is us. Yeah, that's now, deep. That's... That's wild. Yeah. And it's built deeply into the businesses around society. Definitely. Yeah. Well, there's yeah, the benefit tremendously from it. Yeah. And also I think the social media is the newest aspect of that. Like, and especially with kids with the Snapchat and the filters, the filters right. make everybody perfect Different with the filters. And they are, and you can't live up to like, a filter. Your, your face is not enough, but if you swipe three times, yeah. you get the right filter, then it's, Close. Right. Exactly. It's not it, but it's closer. Yeah. And you're so, like, wait a minute. What the shit are they teaching people? <laughs> like, that's not cool. Yeah. And I understand. I, again, this is psychology. I understand why it works. I think it's a pretty bad idea. Yeah. No, definitely. Well, now, the likelihood big companies are going to go, oh, Jarek thinks it's a bad idea. <laughs> we'll stop that. Yeah. Slim. It's no, because they're trying to to sell stuff. So totally. Yeah. And they've been selling a dream forever. Watch this one. If you go all the way back to baseball and movie stars, Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio, that was the dream, man. Become a movie star, become a ball player. Everything in your life will get better. If you could aspire to be these things, fast forward, be become a basketball NBA star. If you could make it to the NBA, my goodness, everything in your life will change for the better. Fast forward. In the 80s, if, if you go work on Wall Street, drive a Ferrari, you've done it. Like the Wolf of Wall Street. You've made it, man. Yachts and girls and cars and men and everything else. Fast forward. I'm, I'm going to figure out which order these are in real quick. I think the first, there's a blend right now. There's two dreams being pitched by Hollywood. Number one, if you could start and uh, if you could have a billion dollar idea, if just the idea, you don't even have to figure out how to actually build a company or do anything with it. But if you have a billion dollar idea, <laughs> your whole life could change for the better. <laughs> Shark Tank, 
They're training you. You just need the idea. Mm. You don't need to know how to run a business or put in the 22 <laughs> years of actually right, doing yeah. something. Mark Cuban will do it for idea. you. Yeah. Just yeah. an idea. Now, the truth is just the ideas don't only go far. The people who actually run the business get the good investments and actually do something with it, but they're not pitching that. It's just the idea. And, and, and my goodness, you don't even have to have a profitable idea. You could, you could have an idea, have 13 friends working with you, and Facebook could buy you for a billion dollars. Hashtag Instagram. Yeah. You didn't even have to work. It just had to be an idea that's floating around that someone else wants. So there's this entrepreneurship, just idea situation. The flip side is if you're really good at arguing with your sisters and you can create a makeup and you can become Instagram famous, my God, you could become the youngest billionaire yeah, on the market. That's, that's the other crazy. pitch that's going on yeah. right now. Those two Argue pitches, those sisters. are good. I like that. Yeah. And, and what's interesting with both of them is they're somehow flavorfully familiar because anyone can come up with an idea. Mm-hmm. Anyone can argue with their family. <laughs> yeah. So it's close enough that it feels tangible. Like I could do that. Not yeah. everyone could jump from the half, the free throw line and slam a ball. Right. Like not everyone could jump that far. So we figured out like, okay, even though I love basketball, there's slim odds. I'm going to make it unless I have certain physiological right. capabilities or determination or, or strength or courage or willpower, or whatever. But arguing, I mean, shit, a lot of people are pretty good at this on the internet. Yeah. So it's <laughs> like if, the easy if, ways. If this, yeah. If this crew could do it, yeah. I just need some friends to bicker with and talk shit. And my goodness, we might be the new, the new queen family. Right. Well, so, and, and so these are things that are, again, they're dreams being pitched yeah. instead of the reality, the reality behind that family. They're actually really smart and they've done a hell of a job at marketing and promotion. And they do a really good job at capturing eyeballs and keeping attention. Right. But that's not the dream. They don't show you the work it takes Uh, to do that. They show you the, if you just argue and create a makeup brand, my goodness, you'll become a billionaire too. Yeah. So you're, cause you did a Ted talk in 2013. It was a, the simple formula to inspire the world uh, to live their dreams. And so I like this. I listened to this last night. It was a three-step philosophy, very simple, learn it, live it and give it. And so most people skip that second step where people, and I, I'm guilty of this too. I realized this. I'm like, Oh, like, cause I, I started a coaching business. I learned all this stuff and I was like, Oh, I'm going to, and now I'm ready to give it. And, uh, I, I don't think I was living it as much. And that's why it, you know, just didn't, people were not reaching out to me for coaching because I was not sh- being the example that I needed to be. So, I mean, explain that more to people though. So this is a little bit of the history piece too. There's a, there's a, there's a sliver kind of slice in between a mentor and a coach. A mentor is someone who's done it, who's showing you how they've done it and how mm-hmm. you can do it too. Right. A coach is someone who doesn't necessarily have to have done it, but they can get you to do it better than you've ever done it before. Mm-hmm. And so a, a mentor might've been Michael Jordan trying to coach his basketball team in Charlotte, which did not go very well at all. Now, he's probably one of the best mentors on earth for playing basketball and determination, focus, and intensity. Yeah. But he was not the world's best coach in getting those players to to perform. Because when they didn't give their all, he would just be like, what's wrong with you? Try harder. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't, like, not giving your all was never an option in his mind. So he can't comprehend why someone would not give their all. Like, Hmm. it just doesn't make sense to him. 
And so he's an unbelievable player. Okay, coach. Versus Steve Kerr, he's turned out to be unbelievable, you know, really good player. Not as good as Michael Jordan, but really good player. Really great coach. He's been able to traverse both sides of that. He gets the Warriors to play really well together, and he was a pretty good player. Um, if you go back to, there's some people who were like, not good players. Like they couldn't <laughs> really play. Yeah. But they or didn't play at all. Right. I mean, there's a lot of coaches that but they're one hell of yeah. a coach. Yeah. And so this is interesting. My philosophy is you want both sides of that. I think some of the best coaches, in my opinion, are the mentor and the coach who's in a coaching position with you. So they're not mentoring you. They're coaching you but they have the tangible experience. They've played the game. They have six championship rings. Like they've done it, but they're coaching you. They're not telling you when I did it, here's how I dribbled. Like that's not what's happening, but they're just saying, Hey, I've been here. I know what this feels like. Let's help you step up and be your best based on what you want, not what they want. And so I, I think some of the best coaches have the mentorship experience because they've really lived it. They've done it. Um, I remember when I was starting my coaching business, I had been coaching for a larger coaching organization for six years before I got into my own coaching business. You know, I had six years of learning how to do it and practicing with hundreds of theirs clients before I finally left on my own to try my own. Now, the reason I started my own is because they wanted me to coach on business coaching for their company. And I had never opened, run, built, scaled, managed, or anything within my own business. I didn't have a business. So like, how in the world am I supposed to coach someone on something I have zero experience with? And they're like, well, you know, we're going to train you. We're going to have you attend the course. We're going to have you read the manual. You're going to learn the steps and procedures, and you're going to coach people through it. I was like, I get it, but I feel far out of integrity because mm -hmm. I literally don't know what it's like to hire somebody. I don't know what it's like to put together systems processes. I don't know what it's like to build a lead acquisition system or a lead conversion system. I don't know what it's like to figure out what the max capacity is on this current product or service. Like I, I don't know business at that point in my life. How in the world am I supposed to coach business? And so there's a little slice where it says great coaches ask great questions. So you can do it if you ask great questions. So I did it a little bit and it felt radically incongruent as a human and a man. So I just decided this isn't for me. I'm going to, I'm just going to start my own business and learn this stuff hands on. I'm going to take what I've learned and I'm going to put it to use in my own business and then I'll have experience. So I did it. My business took off way quicker than I thought it would. So I was like, well, wait a minute, what am I doing when I could just have my own version of this and do my business? So I broke off, went and did my own business and it started working. You know, I, I, thank goodness, found a partner. And we did a partnership together. And when I first went off on my own in coaching, I'd sign up like one or three clients a month, which was normal and average. Average coach makes about 40000 a year in revenue. Um, and and I, we partnered together with her. We, we put together this little event, partnerships of three pieces, reach, relationship, and a world-class product or service. She had the reach. We built a relationship with the community. And then we built a brand new program together. Uh, and when we did it, within 16 months, we had sold $800,000 worth of our services. And I was 24 years old, living in the front end of a house. My overhead was probably 2000 bucks a month. 
And my portion of the 800 grand was 100 grand. <laughs> she got to keep the majority of it. But 24 years old, making $100,000 with a $2,000 a month overhead. That's pretty good. I was killing it. Yeah. <laughs> like in my mind, I was like, I did it. <laughs> like it's going to work. Holy Moses. Now that was a hundred thousand in revenue, not profit. Uh, and I didn't know the difference of these things. So uh, I was about to learn <laughs> a bunch of lessons. And so as you fast forward through my career in the beginning, I had a coaching practice, which was me coaching people individually. It was not a business yet. It was a practice. I owned my own job is another way to say it. So if I didn't work, nothing happens. Uh, I was in a rowboat rowing. How we think we solve that, which is what I tried, uh, we think the way to solve an exhausting rowboat type business model is to just make it a dragon boat and have more people rowing with us. <laughs> so I was like, that's how we do it. We'll just get more rowers. Uh, that just is just as exhausting. Your role changes from rowing all day to row, row. And if you're not around, they don't row and nothing happens in the business. So that's just as exhausting. Your vocal cords go bad instead of your arms. <laughs> uh, eventually, I think you turn mm. it into a pontoon boat. Pontoon boat isn't meant to go far or fast. It's meant to be comfortable, mm. but it's got an engine on it. Okay. An engine is people, processes, and dashboards, like people doing specific things and you're measuring to make sure it's working. But it's an engine, like you squeeze the handle and it's like it goes faster than a rowboat or a dragon boat, uh, but it doesn't go fast or far. It's just kind of comfortable. And so I, all of a sudden, about six years into my sole proprietorship, I started an actual business hmm. and I had a little pontoon boat. Like I'd turn it on. I knew my number. As long as I got to my number every day, I would retire for the day and go out to the beach in San Diego and hang out with my friend Alex and we'd go skateboard and, and scooter and work out and hang out and basketball and all kinds of stuff. But I just hit my number every day and call it a day. And that's, a, that's the pontoon boat. It's comfortable, comfortable enough, good enough, cut it, go do something else. And I did it. And I did that for a few years. And then I eventually got married. Eventually, you know, we just had our son. And somewhere about five years ago, five or six years ago, I met a business mentor who showed me the difference between what's good enough and what's really possible in business. Um, when you go from like operator to owner and this transition, and he showed me what ownership looked like. He had a business doing somewhere around $10 million a year. Uh, his work every day was to open an email at 6 p.m. for 20 minutes and make sure all the blocks were green, his dashboard. And as long as all the blocks were green, his day was over and he just shut the email and keep going on with whatever he was doing. And I was like, wait a minute, your business is doing $10 million a year profit, net profit. And you check an email every day? Uh, like, how, wait, I'm sorry. How does this work? <laughs> like, Sign me up. Yeah, what, that sounds great. What kind of magician are you? Yeah. How, what, what in the world? And, and if you look at the analogy, rowboat, dragon boat, pontoon boat, and then you have those go fast boats, like the cigarette boats, the 55 foot race boats with six engines on the back that goes fast and far. You can drive that from San Diego to Newport Beach for dinner, and you could be there in about 40 minutes on the open water going 90 miles an hour up the coast in the ocean. Now, how much energy do you have to exert to go that far and that fast? It looks like this. You push the throttle mm -hmm. down. And how much do you got to steer? It looks like yeah, this. Yeah, doesn't that you doesn't just take a lot of work? You point it in the right direction. 
Now, if you're in a rowboat and something big's coming at you down the river to get out of the way, it looks like this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So how do you get to that point then? That was the whole game. I met this guy five (laughs) years ago and he's like, I'm going to show you. But what a lot of these online marketers and, and sales guys or marketing gurus do is they take like the five engines off the speedboat and they put them on the back of your rowboat and call that a victory. And I was like, my goodness, you can get a rowboat to go real fast with five turbocharged engines on the back, but it's also going to blow apart because it's not made for that level of speed or intensity. Mm-hmm. You're going to kill your business by doing this. You're going to put too much, either too much good or too much bad. And so I ask people like, what is the max capacity of your business? And, and I love it when people go, my business is made to scale. It's unlimited. And I was like, that's funny because Apple which is considered almost a $2 trillion company in valuation, has a max capacity. (laughs) How do I know this? Because when they launch something and their website breaks because there's too much traffic, that's considered max capacity. So if Apple at $2 trillion in valuation has a max capacity, I guarantee your company has a max capacity and you have no freaking clue what it is. That's a good point. I didn't think of that. Yeah. And, and I'm like, biggest companies in the world have max capacity, but we just don't, the truth is we just don't know what our max capacity is. The max capacity determines quality of customer experience. Cause when this, when the website goes down, the quality of the customer experience goes to shit. Yeah. You keep clicking and all you get is a spinning wheel and you're like, well, this is nonsense. Right, and eventually that's the end of it doesn't go away. Yeah. You're like that's stupid. Um, but, but that's what happens when you don't know your max capacity is you start giving that experience to your customers. Going back to this guy, I was like, I'm going to learn what he's doing because I need to know how to do this. So my whole learn it piece, that first step, I've been studying with him for six years now, learning how to build the hull of a go fast boat. And what I found out was you have to slow down to speed up. I was like, oh God, is this guy Mr. Miyagi? Am I going to get like weird paint the fence techniques in business? And like it's wax on, wax off. One day my business is going to go. But in, you know, last year our business grew 42%. We made more profit in Q1 than all of the year prior. This year with the pandemic, I mean, we got our ass kicked a little, but we're only growing at 24% as as of now, year to date. And I was like, wait a minute, we're growing 24% in a pandemic. That's not bad. I'm sure a lot of we're people would love that. Really good. It's not 42%, but it's 20, no. 24, 26%. So and what I was do like, you, holy yeah. Moses. And so, this, and so it's the process of building the hull. Yeah. Because as you build the hull, then you can turn up the engine and it will go much faster, much further without as much friction. Okay. But you have to take time to build it is what he taught me. So I had to learn how to slow down and build the right things so that when we do step down on the accelerator, we have the type of business that can sustain the speed and velocity in which we want to grow it. Okay. Well, so, I mean, one of the biggest things that you did, just even going back to that business, I mean, you took a leap of faith and you've, you've talked about um, fear versus faith, faith, because fear is where people are thinking about things that are going wrong. And faith is where you're focusing on everything that can go right. Um, And don't you kind of need a little bit of both of those things? Um, I don't know. I had a client go into surgery for stomach cancer a few weeks ago, and I don't know about him focusing on dying. I don't know how much that would have helped the 20 minutes before he's going into surgery. Right. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of people where it's, it's failure to thrive or, or they, they just give up halfway through because they don't see a compelling vision. They don't see where they're going. They don't see a life worth fighting for. So they just quit when it gets hard and it's too much pain. And so for him, I was helping him train his mindset before. And I said, I want you to repeat a three-part pattern. I want you to look back in your past and look for things you're proud of, something difficult that you overcame and accomplished that you're proud of. I want you to look in this very moment right now and think of something you're grateful for in this very moment. And I want you to look into the future and think of something you're excited about. And then I want you to repetitively go past, present, future, past, present, future, past, present, future, something I'm proud of that I've overcome in the past to realize how strong and capable I am, something in the moment I'm grateful for to realize how precious life is, something in the future that I'm excited about to remember what's worth living for that I'm going to go after. And I just did it again and again and again and again. And he came out and he goes, listen, I know people are going to chalk that stuff up as pseudoscience, but I honestly believe it does make a difference. And I feel better when doing it than when not doing it. Hmm. I was like, me too. And, and you know, I feel better when I'm doing those things. Someone told me I had six days left to live. I started repetitively dancing between past, present, future. You know, what I'm proud of, what I'm grateful for, what I'm excited about. A life worth living for, a life worth going after. Something in the future I could see that was compelling enough to want to make it through, you know, the okay. 20 something hours of barfing my brains out <laughs> with malaria medication. So do you think that fear is the number one thing, like that the number one roadblock to success? And when I say success, like we kind of talked about, like success doesn't always have to be yachts and money, but could just totally. be happiness. Like, do you think fear is the thing that holds a lot of people back from just being happy and, and being successful that way? Um, I think I, I like to call it winning patterns. Like if you look at any athletes so or successful athlete. They have winning patterns, certain things they do every single day that cause them to win as an athlete. I think in order to have a successful life, you need winning patterns, certain stuff you do every single day that causes you to win the day. Hmm. Now, winning the day is different for everybody. Winning the day for some people is making money. Winning the day for some people is being a great father or mother. Winning the day for some people is being a great friend. Winning the day for some people is getting an A on a test. So what qualifies as winning the day for you is different for everybody. Okay. But the concept of have you set up winning patterns, patterns, okay. certain behavioral patterns you do every day that cause you to feel like you've won the day. Okay. Um, so then besides fear, you talked about um, tracking emotions. You said there was an app uh, called the yeah. mood meter that can help. Um, but yeah. I know for me, this is something that I deal with. I get so frustrated with technology when it's not working or traffic or stupid people like is how do you become more patient when things are not going the way you expect like maybe you've put in all this work you've taken the leap of faith you're you're following your dreams and you're doing everything you think you're doing everything right but it doesn't always go your way how do you work past that or how do you become more patient with those things that's something like my girlfriend's really good at this she's very patient with technology and things i am not like how do i become more patient um, so more patient, the technical way to do it is you're going to replace the emotion with something else that's more satisfying. Uh, but the other side of this is frustration is nothing more than your fuel of choice. Meaning if there's 120 plus something words that could describe an emotion of how you might feel, what makes you go back to that same one every time? Literally, you, let's just say there's 100. 
if there was a hundred choices mm-hmm. out of all hundred choices, elated, exhilarated, excited, passionate, joyful, gleeful, curious, creative, um, determined, grit, gritty, you know, grittiness, that, that resiliency. If there's all these emotions to feel, why in the world would you keep choosing frustrated? I mean, I feel like it's like an instinct. Like I'm not like choosing it. It's like, it's choosing me. <laughs> so in that case, it's nothing more than an unconscious pattern, which means there's a trigger, something that sets it off. You told us a few traffic technology. There's, there, there's the trigger. Then there's a routine, the process you go with, the process of what part of it you focus on, what does it mean to you and what you're going to do about it. And then there's a reward. There's an emotional, psychological, physiological, biological reward in your body that you get from running this pattern. And it might be the exhilaration. It might be an adrenaline kick in your body because when you get so amped up and you're like, ah, son of a bitch. I think like Chris Farley. Yes. He's like, (laughs) no, oh my God, traffic. (laughs) Like that's going to shoot adrenaline into your body. And then you're going to feel excited, focused, determined. Like you're going to feel powerful in that moment. Mm. And what you really want to feel is powerful. And your fuel of choice to get the powerful is frustration. And what happens is if you look at your life, there's something that we call a crazy eight. It's a pattern where when things are going really, really well, they start to slump. When they slump, you start to feel out of control. As soon as it's so far out of control, like you hit traffic on the freeway and it's pissing you off because it's out of control, pissed off is a way that ignites you from out of control back into control because now you're angry, you're strong, you're powerful. I'm going to get you. But then that only lasts so long until it starts to take too much energy and unconsciously our bodies are always trying to preserve energy. So we start to drop back into that calm, relaxed state and then something out of control happens and it's like, oh no, anger, 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 anger. I'm back in control. And what's Mm. happening is it's nothing more than an eternal loop of these two emotions that just keep dancing. And so what happens is to get out of it if you elevate. And so instead of following the loop all the time, choose a different emotion. So the next time I pull into traffic, I'm going to try something. I'm just going to try a random one and see if it fits. Like I'm going to try deep, deep, deep curiosity. Of like I'm going to pull on the freeway and go, and I can feel my whole body ready to rage. And I'm going to go, I wonder what they're doing. <laughs> and look at the car next to you and be like, hmm. That's good. I like that. That's good. (laughs) Or I wonder what the person in front of me is doing, or I wonder what the behind me one, like you're curious. That's a good one. Like, okay, that that didn't feel as good. It was funny, but it didn't feel as good. Yeah. Like, okay. Sometimes I do just laugh. Sometimes I just have to laugh at all that. Like, it's just such a train wreck of of things that happen, go, they go wrong. You just have to laugh at it. Well, if you wanted to feel more in control, you could do something funny. I wonder if I can get the whole freeway to start laughing. You're like, well, how the shit would you do that? You're like, well, you've seen those videos on a train car where one person starts laughing hysterically. Yeah. Within three minutes, the entire train car is laughing hysterically. What if you start fake laughing so hard in your car that the person next to you looks over and is like, what the hell? And then they start (laughs) laughing. And then someone next to them starts laughing. And then the whole freeway is dead stopped in gridlock traffic, laughing their asses off. That's good. And it's like, 
that would be amazing. I wonder if I could do it. That's good. And now that little bit of curiosity, the wonderment if you could do it and the laughter, if you spend 45 minutes laughing in traffic, it's biologically and chemically healthier for your body. It's making you more resilient. It's, it's setting off endorphins. It's making you stronger mentally, emotionally, and physically. You're actually going to be more filled with energy when you arrive wherever you're going than less. Mm-hmm. Um, versus if you do 45 minutes of anger, massively suppresses your immune system, makes you way more vulnerable to COVID and disease and all these other killer things that are out there nowadays which means that anger for 45 minutes would make you more susceptible to actually break down the cellular structure of your body, which is more susceptible to disease, death, and all those other things. Hmm. And it's wow. like, wow. So not only is there a momentary like, oh, variety, fun, I got to try something new, but there's a long-term positive or negative side effect on your overall health just by what you choose. Oh, that's great. That's good stuff. Um, let's talk about... Uh- uh, relationships or friendships, I'd say, or people in your peer group. You've talked about this, that there's kind of like three categories, um, people you can learn from people that are kind of at the same moment of you and, uh, people that you can help or share. So like, but I did, the one question I had on that was, uh, what are the percentages with that? Like, should you have a certain number of like more people that are at the same moment, more people that you can learn from, um, or does it matter? Is it, I mean, how many, cause if you have those three categories, I can imagine that so you want to have, if you had to, yeah, if you had to pick a perfect percentage, like yeah. just perfect slices, it'd be 33% of 33, each. 33, 33, and it'd be like 33.33. I don't know how to have a 0.33 <laughs> okay. of a friendship, yeah. but that would be the perfect 33.33 slice down the middle. And you'd have 99.99 friends. I don't know how that would technically <laughs> add up. But basically, okay. Point. But so like a third round. Thirds. Okay, thirds. Um, okay, interesting. And it, if you look at it like that, and you got to handcraft it, what I noticed is most people don't craft their peer group. The number one reason why people get into intimate relationships is proximity, meaning they lived close to the person. Mm-hmm. And we don't like to admit that because we're like, oh, how did you find your wife, husband, or lover, or person you're interested in and in a partnership with? And they're like, oh my God, just because we have similar values and we both believe in the same things and we both have similar goals in life. And they did a bunch of research where they sit couples down in separate rooms and they say, what are your values? What are your goals? What do you believe? What are you all about? What's this? And they, they, they analyze it and they found out all of it was total nonsense. The only consistent theme was the closer you lived with around each other, the more likely you'd get into a relationship with each other. Hmm. And I was like, whoa, that screws up a lot of people's whole reason why they fell in love concept. And what was happening is the same thing happens with friends. So I figured this out and I was like, oh my God, that's so true. How did you choose your five closest friends? And it's like, usually you went to school together or you lived down the street from each other or you, or, or you were involved in some types of athletic league together or you worked together. Like it was something about proximity was how you chose your friends. And I'm like, well, that's not always the best idea. Right. <laughs> I was like, why don't you handpick your friends? Why don't you pick the people you'd want to learn from, you'd want to share with, and you'd want to be able to share, you know, give to or, or trade secrets with. And I remember I wanted to learn more about startups and investments, be an angel investor, invest in startups. And I was like, okay, where in the world does this go on in mass? Not like finding the one in my neighborhood that might be a new startup idea that some kid has in his garage. And who knows, maybe that's Apple. I have no clue what that's going to turn into. 
but where are there a bunch of them? Like a ton. And I remember saying, okay, New York has a bunch, uh, Florida, little London, England has Austin's kind of popping. And then I'm like, but San Francisco, San Francisco is popping with startup technology. Like they've got tons of them just everywhere. All, all these people. So I looked at my wife and I said, Hey, this is going to sound crazy. Do you want to move to San Francisco for a few months? She's like, what? Why? And I was like, I want to work on building my peer group in the startup technology world. She's like, pay me a picture. What does this look like? <laughs> and I'm like, well, <laughs> we'll rent an Airbnb. We found one in Sausalito. We'll rent it for three months. We'll move up there. And then we'll purposefully go out and connect and, and build a local community of people who are in these circles already and learn, live, give, learn from them, share with them, you know, find how we kind of match up in, in the learn, live, give cycle. And we did it. And we moved there and we built a, a little tribe and, and friends that we still hang out with today. We still talk to all the time. We, we found investments to invest into. We found clients and people we wanted to work with in that capacity. And it turned into some really amazing relationships. Um, but it was because we purposely decided to go there and, and, and do that on purpose. That wasn't an accident. That wasn't like, oh, I don't know. I was traveling through San Francisco one day and kind of just met a guy. They're like, no, we mm. purposely went there to go meet people and, and make connections and find out how can we add value to these communities? What can we offer that they might not have access to already? And how can we learn from them? And how do we get involved in some of the things they're doing? And, and was, we, we met some of the yeah. most amazing people. Did it, and I'm assuming that not every uh, time that you tried, it worked out so well, right? Did, was there some bumps along the way when you were doing that? Like, did you meet some people that are like, oh, this is not a good fit or? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. But, but I mean, we met people I. I, I would have never been able to tell you how in the world, like we had dinner with Sergey Brin and his family on like a family dinner night. And I was like, that's probably not going to happen for most people. Like that was a friend of a friend inviting us to dinner. And, and it was like, wow, that was, that was really cool. Like this guy created Google. That's that a big deal. Wow. And then we were having, you know, we got invited to this, uh, a Wim Hof, ceremony or, or ice bath thing that he was teaching. And I was laying on, lounging on a yoga mat like they do in a cuddle puddle of San Francisco. <laughs> Just a bunch of people laying around. Okay. So laying around and some dude with long hair comes up and he's like, Hey, what's up? And we talked for like 20, 30 minutes and he's talking about hellaboarding and sailing through the Caribbean on a giant sail ship and all this. I'm like, this guy is a badass. Like I want to hang out with him. Like, I, I just think he's so cool. And he walks away. One of my friends comes up and goes like, oh, I, I see you met the PayPal guy. And I was like, who's the PayPal guy? And they're like, oh, he's one of the founders of PayPal. It's like, no shit. Wow. Well, I didn't know that about him. I just thought he's one adventurous dude who's really freaking cool. Yeah. And so all of those things happened organically. Like, that wasn't me being like, okay. Next on my list is Tom. How do yeah. I meet Tom? Like, that's not what I was doing. Um, I, I was just organically showing up and always trying to add value. Yeah. And you put yourself and in that like, situation hey, somebody, where those good things would happen too, though. So look, that was purposeful. That, that was the biggest moment. Yeah. The moment was I wasn't sitting at home in San Diego or sitting at home in Tampa. It was like, no, let's go there and see what happens. Doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. Who knows? I could have gone there for three months and met nobody. 
Yeah. But we went there and because we were there and willing to take the risk, willing to get involved, willing to throw our hat in the ring and see what happens, things evolved. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, this was really cool. And then I thought about it. I said, what other types of industries, people, would I want to be involved with? Where are they in the world? And how might I purposely put myself in those places just to cross paths with them? I had a friend who took me to um, downtown Las Vegas when Tony Shea had sold Zappos and bought downtown. They didn't buy all of downtown. He bought in the sh all the buildings in the shape of a llama or alpaca downtown Vegas. Right. So yeah. I don't know how you choose real estate, but he took a map and he drew an alpaca and he just bought all the buildings <laughs> inside of the alpaca. <laughs> wow. I was like, okay, when you sell I didn't know that part billion, of it. I was like, when you sell something for $2 billion, you have the ability to purchase all things inside of the alpaca. On I your guess map. so. Jeez. That was, that was pretty cool. I was like, okay, good for him. But we were there. They invited me down and, and we, we were kind of getting thrown in the, in the mix and introducing the how he was doing it and all this other stuff. And I, again, it was one of those synchronicity moments where they invited me down. They invited another group of people down and they have, they had their three C's. Um, I'm forgetting what the other two are, but one of them is collision. So part of the way he was running his investment fund in downtown Vegas was he was funding like, let's say 200 million in, in uh, real estate, 200 million in education, 200 million in art, 200 million in tech. And the role was he would write you a grant, but you had to move to downtown Vegas and be in the mix Oh. of the other investments. Right. So he had all these smart people, creative people, you know, hardworking people mixing. And one of the three C's was collision because he thought if he could bring them all close enough together and they're going to randomly collide in the elevator, at the coffee shop, at the lunch place, down the street, at a game and something else. If they're randomly colliding then he's creating natural proximity within these three types of communities, art, education, and technology. And they're going to move ideas between each other in a way that normally wouldn't happen if they were separate all over the world. Huh. So he purposely brought them together in, in an alpaca incubator of the city <laughs> and, and caused them to collide with each other so that natural sparks would happen between each other and one person in the education says, oh, I have this unique way of teaching entrepreneurship to young people. And this person goes, oh my God, I could build an app for that. I go, really? Ah. And all of a sudden that elevator ride turns into something that cross-pollinates something that would have never randomly happened if they weren't in the same elevator. Yeah. Very cool. So I believe in the concept of collision, yeah. which means you have to put yourself in proximity with people you want to be colliding with for the opportunities to expose themselves. Oh, that's really smart. Yeah. And that's interesting. Yeah. Cause a lot of people I interview, it is a lot of that, like they're in the right place at the right time. And it's usually not by accident. Like if you want to be a rock totally. star, usually not staying in Nebraska or right? they moved to LA or those kinds of things. So yeah, yeah. that's interesting. And it, it just, it's collision. It's right place, right time. You know, people say in New York City, they're like, if you live in New York City, there's opportunity on every street. Like you walk down the street, bump into someone, and there's an opportunity for something you could go be a part of if you want to. And the key in those places is learning how to filter what is the right opportunity to get involved with and which ones aren't. Same thing in the startup world. 
I mean, you could throw $10,000 seed money at a hundred different companies and realize that in a rough time, like we're in right now, economically, 95% of them are going to fail in 10 years. That means if you gave $10,000 to a hundred companies, 95 of them are literally going to be gone. Yeah. Of the five remaining, that doesn't mean they're profitable. It just means they haven't died yet. Huh? You're like, oh my God, that's going to get expensive really fast. Yeah. Well, and then I think one thing that um, I had uh, Chris Widener on here and um, you have, you guys have the same piece of advice that I, I that just recently heard this, but it was really good advice. Like if you want to get involved with something, people always reach out to these uh, celebrities or successful people and they ask for a favor. They ask for something they want them to do, but instead reach out to them and say, how can I add value to your place or your company or your business? And I think you had a story about uh, somebody reaching out to Jim Cramer, who's like a very- Yeah, James. Yeah. So the the key with, I realized this after it happened a few times, Um, I had worked really hard. People started to notice- and the, you know, I'd get emails where people were genuinely trying to use a formula to connect. And I, the email would say, hey, Jarek, I like your work. Uh, how can I be of service? Or how can I be of value? Question mark. Yeah. And I said, okay. That's such a genuine, kind email to send, to be honest. That is really genuinely a kind email. And what they don't realize is they're accidentally putting more work on my plate. Right. Because now I have to look up who the hell they are. I have to research them. I have to figure out what they're actually good at. I have to then cross-reference that with things we're working on and see if there's any use anywhere in what we're doing in their skills and our thing. And then we have to have the discussion to see if, they're, if they can do it. Are they willing to do it? Is it their nature to do it? We, we got to like actually, there's all this work that goes into answering that question if I'm going to actually answer the question. If it's fluffy and I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you know, let's talk and find out that that's not reality. But like, if I was actually going to find out where they could be actually useful, tactically, tactically based on their skill sets and and knowledge and experience, that's going to require like a few hours of work on my side. I'm like, well, that's not cool to do to somebody (laughs) because now I just gave you two hours of work with my generous email. Right. I'm like, no way, man. Like if I, if, that's not cool. So I thought about it. And, I, and, and James was the first person I crossed paths with who he told me that story of what he did with Jim Cramer. And I was like, dude, he cracked the code. He figured out the formula. And what he did was he sat down and he said, I want to connect with Jim Cramer. If I send him an email in New York City when he's on his prime on television saying, hey, Jim, can I take you out to coffee and pick your brain? Like it's going to get deleted. There's no chance he's going to be like, sure, James, I've been waiting for your email. <laughs> Um, right. like it's not gonna. Yeah. It's not gonna happen because too many people watch him. Too many people are involved. So he said, "How could I add genuine value to this dude's life?" And so he thought about it, and he says, "You know, here's what I'll do. For the next thirty days, I'm gonna write down ten ideas of how I could add value to his life each day. Ten new ideas, different ideas every day. So I'm gonna come up with three hundred ideas I genuinely think would add true value to Jim Cramer's life." So every day he wrote down 10 ideas. At the end of 30 days, he said, I'm going to pick my top three. I'm going to pick my favorite one. And then I'm going to do it. I'm going to just put it into motion, see what happens. His favorite one was 10 blogs I wish you would write as an avid reader of your your blog. He's like, I've read every blog you've written. I watch your show regularly. 
Here's 10 topics I wish you would cover in detail on your blog. And then he said, well, wait a second. If I send that, that's okay. He's like, I'm going to do the research on these topics. So he went and did the research and he pulled up all kinds of facts and data mm, and information. Right. And then he put, put the, put the links and information in like, here's what I, here's the topic. And here's the 10 things or the five things I'd cover. And here's the links of where I'd find the information. And then he's like, well, I could make it better. Here's the SEO friendly title to use. I, I did all the research. Here's the, here's the best title to use on each of the blogs, plus the research, plus the links, plus a short paragraph description of like what, what I would, the angle I would take. He wrote all that for 10 blogs and said, Hey Jim, I'm an avid reader of your blog. I love what you do. I'd love to connect with you someday, but for now, here's 10 topics I wish you would blog on. Here's a little bit of research on each topic, a brief summary paragraph, as well as the, the best SEO friendly title. I hope it's valuable. I hope you blog on it. And I hope we connect someday. James. He got an email back in 10 minutes that said, James, would you be willing to write these for our blog? This is really great research. He said, I would love to. They hired him to come and write for their blog on their show. And while he was there, he walked around each day and said, what's 10 ways I would make this place better? And every day, he just wrote down 10 ways he'd make it better. 10, thing, 10 ways, something that's missing that he could improve. Every day, 10 more. At the end of however long it was, he had identified a software that was missing. And instead of being like, hey, guys, I came up with a software idea, which doesn't mean, I mean, again, you're giving them more work. Yeah. No, he invested in it. He went and invested his own money, time, and research into building the actual software. Then he brought them the software once it was working and said, hey, I built this software it would really help in this place because I saw that it was missing and you didn't have any. Would you like Would you like it? Would you like to use it? They sat down, analyzed it, and were like, oh my God, this is amazing. They ended up buying it from him for $10 million. That's great. And I like this went from, I'd like to pick your brain over coffee yeah. <laughs> to a $10 million deal. Not bad at all. Because he was willing to add value each leg of the journey. Yeah. And he did the work. So. And he never once asked. He did the work. Yeah. It was never like, yo, Jim, do you think this is a good idea? Like, should I actually put some time into it for you? None of that. He's like, I know it's a great idea, and I'm literally going to do it and then just bring it to him and say, hey, I made this for you. That's so smart. Deal. That's amazing. There's uh, a lot of distinctions in that that people, if, if you, I mean, if, if I was listening to this podcast, I'd rewind that two or three times and listen for all the distinctions of what he did versus what most people do. Right. That's the thing. Yeah. Cause I think most people would just reach out and do the, like you said, like, Hey, let's get some coffee. He's getting so many of those emails. This one's going to definitely totally. separate from the pack for sure. But he added genuine value. Yeah. Like he really added the value. He didn't talk about the value he could add. He didn't propose adding value. He didn't write an email that says, Jim, I'd like to add value. Tell me how I can. He literally added the value. He added it. He did it. That's amazing. He didn't say like, hey, I'd like to help you find a customer. He brought 10 customers that all signed up. Like yeah. he did it. Yeah. And by doing it, he built a relationship. And that could be applied to so many different fields pretty much anything totally. 
Yeah. I watch I watched my dad do that. I don't talk about him a lot, but I watched my dad do this with a business deal. He had a firm that he was talking to, and he said, Why don't you guys come to my event? Let, let me see if I could add value. He knew the lifetime value of a client for them. He knew what it would be worth. He knew the type of deal he might be able to strike with them. But instead of proposing a deal, he said, Why don't, why don't you come to my event? Why don't you we have you up on stage for 10 minutes and you tell people what you do and your accounting firm and this and that and all this stuff? And he goes, oh, Great. He went out to the audience. He said, how many of you, based on what you just heard, would sign up for their service? And all the hands went up. They were like, let's say there's 6,000 people in the room. And he goes, let's take it a step further. We're going to pass out a little info card. Can you please write, fill it in with all your information for you, your business, everything. If if you actually do want to work, not just you're saying it, but you actually do want to work with them. Then afterwards, he had a meeting with them. And he said, hey, guys. Here's the thing. My team counted. We have about 2,200 people right here from this one event that would like to work with you guys. If I understand the lifetime value of your client, this is worth X millions of dollars of new business right here. Would you guys like to strike a deal? They were like, yeah, <laughs> how many times a year can you do this? Yeah. Like, is this a, is, what, what? This is amazing. Like you got 2,200 leads of people who understand clearly what we do and said, I would like to do it. And they know the price point. They know what's going on. They're Sounds in. good. Yeah. That's a pretty this easy company lead. Was out of their mind. Yeah. And he's like, okay, well, let's strike a deal. Write me a proposal. What do you think it's worth? Wow. That's great. But that's adding value. Yes. Not being like, oh, I think I could possibly maybe do something for you somewhere in the future. Like maybe you should write me a proposal and then we'll find out what's true. No. It's like, come, I'll show you what I can do. 2,200 leads. He's like, okay, do you want them? Or that's I throw amazing. Them away? I can throw them away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, no, that's we great. like them. They're like, okay, let's try a deal then. Awesome. Well, and so it's that same philosophy. It goes both for, for, for Jim and, and the way that happened there. It, it's adding the value first and then saying, okay, is there yeah. something else here we could do together or is this it? Right. And besides adding value um, to businesses and to other people, um, one of the things that I always end each episode with value, adding value to the world and then do, and working with charities. Um, and I know you work with a few charities. Is there one that you want to highlight right here? I know you work with a make a wish and habitat for humanity and feeding America. Man, we've had so much fun with all these charities. My, my wife was a wish grantor of the year in San Diego for granting wishes through make a wish. Wonderful, wonderful organization. It was so much fun and it makes such a big difference for people when it really matters most. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Feed America, my dad made a pledge to deliver a billion, to donate a billion meals over the last 10 years. He's already delivered over 500 million meals over five years through that organization. Love that. And, and you know, he was working with one of the crown princes in, in uh, the Middle East to, to put together a fund to possibly make it happen 100 meals a year forever. Like, period. Wow. Like, figure out how to put it together. So every year, 100 million meals would be donated forever. And I was like, that's cool. Um, Operation Underground Railroad, they're really big right now and it's important. Mm. Um, they're, they, we, we saved money to go uh, build a new kitchen in a, in a house we just bought in Puerto Rico. And we, we went to my dad's birthday and, and he had Operation Underground Railroad there talking about um, 
what is it? Child sex trafficking. And, and they were talking about how there's still millions of people in, in, in trafficked and in some type of bondage or slavery around the world in these situations and, and how it's happened. People are like, Oh, I could only imagine like somewhere in some far off land. And then they're arresting people in, I mean, all over the United States, California, Oklahoma, Atlanta, like all these places and cities that you would never imagine this stuff happening is happening all the time. And it's a hot topic right now. Huge topic. It's an important topic because you don't realize how crazy it is and how intense it is and how often it's happening. Like I had no clue how often it was happening. And then when you start to become aware of the stats and numbers and what to look for, you're like, oh my gosh, this is really happening all the time. And it's insane. Insane. People don't want to think about it. The worst case, I mean, they were talking about how with drugs, like someone could buy or, or sell drugs, but once it's sold, it's sold. Like the drugs are gone, the money's here, and it's done. You can't make any more money. Where a child, they can sell and resell and resell and resell for <sighs> sex all throughout the day. And so it, 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 it's a business model that they make billions off of a year doing this, and it's disgusting and yeah. horrible. But then there's a step that takes it even more disgusting, which is um, the organ market where they go buy or steal a kid and then they, they sell the kid's heart for X hundreds of thousands of dollars on the black market for organ dealing. And this shit's really happening in the United States? It legitimately happens. Like that was my mind. Like somewhere Whoa, deep in yeah. the jungles of the yeah. whatever part of the world, like crazy shit's happening. And it's like, no, that shit happens in like Utah and Nevada and and places you wouldn't imagine. Wow. You're like, no, that is wild. How the shit do people not know this is going on? It's called Underground and, Railroad Project. Yeah. Okay. And this is something that I learned with two friends working directly with this kind of stuff. I realize there's political unrest and there's some crazy stuff happening in the world right now. And there's things yeah. that need to be rectified. Yeah. Some of there's an un thought of consequence that happens with some of the statements people are making, one of which was defund the police. In a major city, if there's only enough money to pay for one or two people to manage a city with 12 million residents, and those one or two people are in charge of hunting down and busting sex trafficking situations, if you defund that precinct, who do you think the first is going to get cut? Probably those one or two people, because they could only afford to have one or two of them in the first place. Right. And that means they don't think it's that important. And if they don't think it's that important and they could barely fund two people in the first place, if you have to cut their funding, I guarantee they're going to take it from those two people very quickly. And, and if this is already such a big mess and we already don't even know half of what's going on all over the place. And it's just being turned over. The rock's just being turned over right now. That turns real messy when we take away the people who could actually go stop it. Right. So maybe it's a rearranging of the finances. Cause I'd like to see that department sure. grow massively. Yeah. So how, I, you know, what is your take on that without getting too political, just with all the crazy unrest in the world, how do we come together and, and heal from all this anger. I feel like there's so much division. I don't know if you've seen the social dilemma movie on Netflix, but it was really interesting. They talk about how social media people, other foreign countries are doing a lot of this. They're amping people up to get them uh, angry at each other. 
how do we right. come together and, and be able to go, okay, you're a Republican, I'm a Democrat or vice versa or libertarian or independent or whatever. Can we coexist? Can we, ha- can we think differently and still be in the same country with each other? Or do we all have to you think gotta, the same way? You have to elevate the, the categories you're choosing. Because we could go down to like, I have a long index finger and you have a short index finger. Therefore, that means something. But most of us don't spend time walking around measuring our thumbs to each other, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like yeah. You and I didn't walk up and you're like, hey, how long's your hair? Oh, yeah. shit, yours is longer? Okay, that means something to <laughs> like Right. Most of us didn't be like, how long's your nose? My, oh, oh, oh yeah. same these. We have the same nose. That means we're totally the same human. Yeah. Like- how white are your teeth? Like, like we don't play this game except for during certain times of the year. We're now being taught that like, which way are you going? Right or left, right or left, which way are you going? Right. You know, red or blue, red or blue. And it was like, well, wait a minute. Why are we choosing to designate each other based on how tall, like tall people can go right. Short people go left. We'd never say something. Cause we'd be like, well, that's stupid. We'd be like, well, anyone with brown hair, you guys are cool and everyone else sucks. Like we wouldn't say that because that's stupid. But for some reason, we're doing that with politics. We're like, oh, you're either red or blue. You're either good or evil, bad or worse, evil or good. Like we're doing this. And what's happening is we're lowering down the criteria of how we're deciding something. Now, we all do have to vote. But if you elevate back up to, wait a second, I had someone start a conversation and say, well, clearly you believe this and I believe that. Therefore, now let's have a conversation. And I said, why don't we restart the conversation? Clearly go up. I'm a human and you're a human. Let's start there. Let's start (laughs) at I'm a human and you're a human. Now let's have a discussion about topics that as humans, we might have different opinions on. Cause now we're both human. And she went, Oh, okay. <laughs> well, as a human, yeah. how do you feel about this? And I stopped and I said, that was amazing. And she goes, what? And I said, instead of saying as a Republican or as a Democrat, how do you feel about this? You recognize my humanity first. You said, as a human, how do you feel about this? And I went, my goodness, we can make a lot of progress with that recognition of humanity first. As a human, how do you feel about this? Not as a Republican, not as a Democrat, not as a Libertarian, not as a Green Party or whatever else people are choosing. As a human, how do you feel about this? As a human, how do you feel about someone getting dragged out of their car and you know getting the shit kicked out of them for no reason? It's like, as a human, I don't feel good about that. Right. It's wrong. As a human, how do you feel about two people sitting in a car and having a random dude walk up and shoot them in the face? As a human, that sounds pretty dumb too. Yeah. Oh, well, as a human, we've got some shit to solve then. (laughs) Yeah. Clearly, humans don't like either form of this. Right. So we need to work together as humans and solve it. But if we're going to bring it down to as a human who wears shorts versus a human who wears pants... Now it's going to get messy because now we're saying, no, pants are better. No, shorts are better. <laughs> and it's like, well, wait yeah. a minute. And I realize I'm, I'm lightly treading over some very, very important topics. I do not take these lightly. I'm just saying if we elevate back to as a human, we communicate very differently. Now, how to communicate with people you radically disagree with 
Um, there's a wonderful research study. It's how they ended apartheid in South Africa. It's based, it, it's called spiral dynamics. It was, so apartheid was originally a black and white problem. So black people had problems with white people and white people had problems with black people in South Africa. And it, it was built into the culture. It was the way it is. It was totally justified. There was reasons on both sides. Um, and someone came and did some research and looked around and said, well, wait a second. That black police officer is nothing like that black lawyer. And that black lawyer is nothing like that black teacher. And that white teacher is nothing like the white lawyer. And the white lawyer is nothing like the white police officer. But the black police officer and the white police officer are much more like each other than the others. And the white lawyer and the black lawyer are much more like each other than the others. And, and the white teacher and the black teacher and the black teacher and the white teacher are much more like each other than all the others. Oh, wait a second. I wonder if we can recategorize color and recreate a spectrum where we can identify the most important values and priorities of each of these groups, not based on skin color, but instead based on their deep values that they put deep importance on. And all of a sudden, they created a whole different scale and they labeled it. And, and the book is amazing to huh. read and understand and go, wow, if you want to connect with someone who radically disagrees with you, understand where on the scale they value and learn how to communicate with someone in that, that layer of the scale. And all of a sudden you can get through to anybody because you understand why they believe certain things, why they behave certain ways, why they're acting the way they are. And you go, Oh my gosh, that makes sense. Hmm. I'll I have to check that out. What's the, the book it's called? So you sorry, what was it called? Spiral dynamics. Spiral dynamics. Okay. Wow. That sounds Spiral amazing. Dynamics. Oh, it's so useful. We use this in corporate training all the time because as you can imagine i was talking to the gentleman yesterday um you know he was a commander on a, on a navy vessel and he was saying i had, at one point had a hundred and i don't know 150 people under me they came from every state you could imagine they had every background every type of si dynamic family situation they believed totally and radically different things and i had to get all of them to work together i was like dude do you imagine 150 people from all different states, regions, and parts of the world, and you got to get them all to row the same way on the boat? That's a rough job. Yeah. Because there's naturally going to be friction where people disagree. Sure. And, and he's like, yeah, I had to learn how to speak their languages individually. I had to learn that when they came in to talk with me, that each one had a very unique language of the way they thought, felt, and understood the world. And I learned how to communicate directly with theirs straight to them so that they felt appreciated, acknowledged, understood, and important. And then I had to help them bring that to life and figure out how does that apply to the overall mission and how do we keep everyone rowing in the same direction? Wow. That's part of what Spiral Dynamics gives someone the ability to do. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've done so many amazing things with your charity work, your coaching, you have a book, your TED Talk. Um, what does the future hold? Is there anything else that you, any projects you have in the works right now or just continuing on with what you're um, doing? My most recent thing we put together, uh, we, we saw a bunch of small business owners just get whacked as the lockdown went in, mm -hmm. in place. Sure. And small business owners to me holds a deep place in my heart. I mean, this is how my uncle puts food on the table for my cousins. This is how you know people take care of their families. This is how local moms and dads invest to, to have jerseys for the soccer team at the high school kind of thing. Yeah. And so it's meaningful. Like this is where a lot of that money comes from to do all these things in communities. And, and I watched them just getting hammered. And so I sat down and said, okay, if I was going to help save my uncle's tile shop, how would I do it? 
And I, I wrote down an SOS plan of like, here's the immediate nine things that I would do to get this thing rectified in the right direction and go. And we put together a free training we do every Friday right now, specifically to help small business owners survive this chaos. And we, we've gotten some really beautiful letters and, and little feedback from people saying, hey, if I didn't hop on here seven weeks ago and I didn't apply some of the stuff you've been teaching, I probably would be out of business right now. So I just want to say thank you for helping me keep my business alive. That's awesome. That's kind love of a that. side passion project we've been working on right now. That is very cool. Wow. Well, thank you so much for doing my podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for all the great wisdom and, and knowledge that you have. This is amazing things that you've shared and people should go on your website to learn more and they can reach out to you. And there's uh, things that uh, resources that, that you have on your website, uh, coaching and programs and things that you have for uh, purchase, right? Yeah. They can check that stuff out. Find yeah. me on Instagram. Instagram. Jerk Robbins. Yeah. I mean, we put, we push out good thoughts every day to try to oh, help yeah. inspire people. Yeah. I follow My you. The whole thing yeah. is, you know, reach the people who need it most at the moment they need it with the message they need. Yeah. And for everyone listening, like, I don't know who you are, where you are, what you're going through, but I hope something we talked about today really landed at the moment you needed it most. Absolutely. That's great stuff. Thank you so much, Jarek. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. So that was Jarek Robbins, motivational speaker, life coach, author, overall extraordinary person, doing a lot of good things in the world, has some great wisdom and interesting takes on a lot of this psychology stuff, uh, which is always interesting to me because I love psychology and what motivates people. I mean, I could just talk about this stuff for hours. Uh, if you like this episode, you might also enjoy another interview I did with another great motivational speaker and author, Chris Widener. Um, good interview there, good w wisdom. Um, but thank you so much to Jarek today for coming on my show. Uh, make sure to check out his website and follow him on social media. Uh, make sure you subscribe to my podcast so you can catch all the future episodes that I'll have. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great day or night. And remember to shoot for the moon.